Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Louisa Hallmeyer-Wacker. Let's get started with episode 10. There are many areas at the forefront of personalized medicine. In this episode, I want to dive into digital health technology, more specifically on the topic of telemedicine and the integration of artificial intelligence into clinical diagnostics. Here with me today to discuss these topics is Dr. Patrick Singer, who is the medical director of Babylon Health Rwanda, also known as Babel. Patrick is a medical doctor with over 10 years of hands-on medical experience. He has held different senior positions within the Rwandan Ministry of Health, the last one being a director general role at the Kabaya District Hospital. Patrick has extensive experience in public health, community policing, hospital administration, and people management which he has obtained while working for different international institutions, including the United Nations. He's very passionate about digital health and has been involved with Babel since its inception in Rwanda. Patrick, it's a great pleasure to welcome you on the podcast today. Happy to be here and looking forward to this conversation. So Babel was founded in 2013 in the United Kingdom. In 2016, the company expanded to Rwanda, which was their first international expansion. For our listeners who are from all around the world, why Rwanda? Good question. Uh, Rwanda for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, we had tried our model in a privileged country, which is the UK. We're looking forward to seeing if this same model could kind of make sense in a less privileged country. And we chose Rwanda for a couple of reasons. First of all, Rwanda, uh, for its geographical location, you are just three hours away from any other country in East Africa and Central Africa. But also, Rwanda is now known as being this country where they have uh, zero tolerance for corruption. Uh, The healthcare system is so well structured. And the country is incentivizing companies that are willing to set up in Rwanda, set their head, regional headquarters in Rwanda in a bid to scale all over the region. So Rwanda was kind of making sense in that sense. Yeah, it sounds like there was the necessary support and also the environment uh, for uh, Babylon to expand and for Babel ultimately to become successful. To go a bit back into your background, um, you've been involved with Babel since its inception in Rwanda. So why did you decide to join the Babel team? And maybe could you go into a bit more detail on what is your role as medical director? Sure. Uh, well, before I joined Rwanda, I was working, as you've said, for the Ministry of Health for a couple of years. And the reason why I chose to be deployed in a remote district hospital was that I wanted to make a change. Uh, I really wanted to go where the issues are, where the patients are struggling the most with access to healthcare. Uh, And to some extent, I succeeded. Uh, But I still was a little bit frustrated in the sense that I was still receiving patients that were reaching me at the district hospital 
at a stage where I could no longer do much for them because they they are delayed in the communities, they are delayed in the health centers before they reached me. Um, I, I saw cases with patients that were exposed, for instance, to so many antibiotics down in the community before they could reach a GP that could actually diagnose the condition and say, this is actually a viral infection. You didn't even need an antibiotic. So when I was contacted in 2016 to be part of the Babylon team, it just kind of made sense. It was a scaring experience in the sense that uh, I had not been exposed to digital health before. So I had to learn as I was doing the work, but it was a challenge that I was willing to accept because of the promise. And the need was there. Uh, back in 2016, we had um, one GP, one doctor covering a population of about 16,000 of population. So the need was there. Having this technology that was going to help the few doctors and most of the doctors were in town. 50% of our doctors are situated in Kigali, while all the need is in the countryside. So how can you use technology to leverage the few doctors that are readily available to reach the many out there that need care? This is a promise that was appealing to me. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to diving into if uh, you've been able or Babel as a whole has been able to to fulfill that promise or to um, to get closer to that goal of really providing healthcare uh, in rural areas and underprivileged communities. So, but let's start um, maybe more at the beginning with how does Babel currently work in Rwanda and so how do patients interact with the service and what are conditions that can be treated uh, through digital medicine? Sure. Uh, when we started, the, a couple of things had to happen. We looked at the model that we were providing in the UK, which was an app that would allow a patient to interact with a clinician via video call. And obviously, most all of the patients in London have smartphones and all of the doctors have uh, access to internet and access to computers. So it was kind of straightforward in London. When we decided to go for Rwanda as uh, our first country to scale to, we had to really challenge this model we're providing in the UK and see if it could make sense in a context like Rwanda, where phone penetration was said to be around 70%, but most of it was a feature phone. Smartphone penetration was a little bit less than 10%. So if we had introduced the smartphone app, it would have addressed the issues to do with less than 10%. And to that complexity, you have to add the fact that most patients did not have access to internet, even though they had smartphones. Uh, so we had to really rethink the model, and the one we decided to go for was a USSD version of our app. Uh, USSD being this technology that is uh, mostly used in Africa by telco companies, but also in the banking sector. It allows users to interact with um, providers of a service by way of text messages without needing internet connectivity and without needing any payment of any sort. And it can be used on a feature phone or on a smartphone. So this is the technology we are using in Rwanda. Uh, the other thing we had to figure out was uh, 
we were not sure the level of access to hardware that our GPs and nurses would be having. So we decided to gather them all in a call center-like environment so that we could provide them with the hardware and provide them with the right level of internet connectivity. So how does this work? The patient will take his phone, uh, register to our platform using USSD. Uh, we check the validity of his uh, ID card. We check the validity of the patient's insurance number. And in Rwanda, just uh, to put this into perspective, we are working with the national insurance company which covers about 93% of the population. It is our version of universal healthcare. We are integrated with them. So we check the national ID. We check the validity of the insurance. The insurance will determine how much the patient pays. The payment is done um, over the patient's mobile wallet. When the patient has uh, proceeded with payment, he receives a confirmatory message which is a very detailed message in the sense that it tells you when is your appointment and who your appointment is with. Your first interaction with our platform is with a nurse. The nurse's role is to medically triage you in the sense that she's going to assess your, your condition in terms of severity. Uh, she's the one that is going to interpret our scope of practice as provided to us by the Ministry of Health. We can't treat everything, obviously. We don't have the ambition of treating everything. We have a particular scope of practice, which is kind of big because it covers more than 70% of all the primary healthcare issues seen here in Rwanda. So the nurse is going to ask you a couple of questions to determine if you are suitable for healthcare over the phone. If you are not, she's still going to provide value in the sense that she's going to advise you on first aid uh, on self-care management, and she's going to provide you with a, an official referral that you can take to your next point of care. If you decide you fit our scope of practice, she's going to book an appointment on your behalf with our in-house GP, which is what we call the consultation. Now, the GP can, after the consultation, can issue a lab test, a prescription, or a referral code. How do we do this? From a patient perspective, the patient is going to receive a short message, which is not a readable SMS. It is a 14-digit code. The patient is going to take this code to his next point of care. Let's say it is a code for prescription. The code is going to be put in our platform on your next point of care, and then the prescription pops up, or the lab test pops up, or the referral pops up. This is how it works. And we've integrated our platform with 418 of the 506 public health facilities in Rwanda, meaning we are basically in all the 30 districts. We are closer to the patient. In a nutshell, this is how it works. So it sounds like you're really integrating a lot of aspects already. You're integrating, as far as I've understood, the laboratory facilities, the pharmacies, the insurance companies, as well as public health centers uh, around. Um, just for clarification, so um, how does most of this consultation work? Is it over text message or is it um, on a call uh, where you're actually talking to the patient? The consultation are happening on a call where we are actually talking with the patients. These are 
currently voice conversations. We are looking uh, forward to introducing um, more app, more video capability in the months ahead. But currently, it is mostly voice consultations. Great. I want to highlight the success of Babel a little bit. Um, the platform has more than 2 million registered users so far, and that's around 30% of the adult population of Rwanda. So, Patrick, who's using the platform and has it increased the accessibility of healthcare overall? Um, and I think that goes towards that the mission that you had to also increase accessibility of healthcare um, in rural or less accessible situations. Thank you. Uh, so we started in 2016 with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and in partnership with the, the Rwandan Ministry of Health. Um, the aim was to run a pilot for two years to kind of test this model, see if we could uh, provide accessibility and affordability to healthcare. But even above that, to see if we could provide quality healthcare to the patients. And it was important for all the parties involved after the two years pilot to contract with a private party. And in this, in this case, it was Dolberg, which is an internationally renowned company, consultancy company, to kind of run a, an impact study and assess the impact that Babo has had in the two years, in its two years of operations in Rwanda. What they found was quite interesting. They found that um, Babo's patient were reported to be satisfied and 90% were uh, saying they were satisfied with the offering as compared to about 80% to patients that went to public health facilities. Uh, they found that Babo's patients were likely to have an appointment with a clinician within the hour. Uh, that was 80% as compared to um, just 20% in the public health facilities. Uh, Babo patients reported some kind of time and uh, money savings when they were using uh, the platform. But in to go back to your question in terms of who is using the platform, they found that 50% um, of female and 50% of male were using the platform. It was also important for us to look at uh, equity in the sense of socioeconomical access. We saw that Babo was operating at par with the public health facility in the sense that in Rwanda the society has been uh, has been stratified in four groups depending on social economical background and the way those four groups were accessing healthcare with Babo was exactly the same way they were accessing healthcare with the public health facility. We also looked at urban versus rural and we saw that 80% of our callers were coming from the countryside, from the rural areas, which makes a lot of sense because that's where the most need is. So these are the people that are using bubbles. Yeah, and as you said, that makes sense because they're maybe also the ones that have to travel the furthest um, and have also uh, just not as much accessibility close by. 
Um, so was there an issue convincing people or customers to start using the platform in the beginning? Um, and did you face any kind of difficulties early on? Good question. Uh, I mean, we're talking about a different way of providing healthcare. And behavior change is something that takes a lot of time. And you're talking about introducing a digital platform. Patients were used to going to a health facility, finding a nurse or a GP wearing a white coat with a stethoscope around the neck. You're trying to tell the patient that has been going to a health facility for, let's say, 40 years that he can do the same over phone. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of explanation, a lot of education. So we invested a lot in communication for the last four years and the beginnings were difficult i mean i still remember the days when we had uh, after three four months of operation when we reached five consultation in a week we had to party because that was such an achievement but now we are at a point where we're having about 3500 consultations every day and we no longer regarded as this alternative form of medicine we are just part of the healthcare system. And yeah, I think we've gone a long way and we are really proud of that. Yeah, I think as you should be. <laughs> there, so you said that there were 3,500 patients approximately a day. So how many nurses uh, and GPs are serving those patients on a given day? So currently we have a staff of um, 120 nurses mainly doing triage for now. Uh, we have 80, 80 GPs that are doing consultations. Uh, with that kind of staff, and this is the total number of staff, but actually the way they're working for us is in shift. We didn't want to be seen as stealing the few doctors that are available in the public health facilities. So actually, we insist on them still be practicing in public health facilities and clinics for two reasons. Uh, one is we want the experience that they're gaining by working on a digital platform. I want them to take this back into their own facilities. But also we want to keep gaining the experience they're getting from bedside practice of medicine and take this back on a digital platform. So basically, uh, we, are, we are employing them on a part-time basis. And every shift has, on average, about 30 uh, nurses and about 15 GPs. And each shift lasts about six to seven hours. This gives us a capacity of doing about uh, four to 5,000 calls a day now. But on average, we are doing about 3,500 consultations a day. Uh, the, we have given ourselves a couple of KPIs, and one of them is that a patient shouldn't wait for more than 15 minutes before he's attended to. And so far, we've been able to maintain that. Yeah, that sounds very promising um, and also very responsible to have that exchange of um, ideas still with physicians being both on a digital health platform as well as still practicing in clinics. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a guest, 
please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To download the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot com. The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. Make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. Um, so it's been great to hear about the success of digital health consultations in Rwanda. But what Babylon has really focused on is developing and implementing artificial intelligence. Overall, the company's mission is to put an accessible and affordable health service in the hands of every person on earth. So Patrick, could you explain how AI works in the context of telemedicine and how it could be incorporated? Sure. Um, so we, we want to take the cost of healthcare further down and improve even more the quality of healthcare. And you can try to do that by conventional means, meaning building more hospitals, building more health facilities, training more doctors and nurses, which actually the government of Rwanda and like so many governments have been trying to do uh, with a lot of success, I must say, at least for the case of Rwanda. Uh, but then you, you reach a threshold where you can't do much more and you need to stop at some point investing in in buildings and in training and start investing in quality. And we think uh, AI can help in doing that. Um, so we had this AI that was developed in the context of the UK by UK doctors. The question was, how does this apply to Rwanda, for instance? So for the last two years, we've been uh, localizing the AI uh inputting uh building in the local epidemiological models uh adding to it uh the local language and actually testing it we've tested it in the context of our local our call center we've tested it in the context of health centers uh what do we want to do with the ai the reason why we want the ai is you can't find enough nurses to deal with all the triaging that is needed in Rwanda. And actually, do you need nurses to do clinical triage? It's about just assessing the severity and referring the patient to his next point of care. Maybe you don't need nurses. Can you foresee a future where uh, non-clinical staff trained and provided with the AI could be able to do some triaging? And if you are able to do that, do you also foresee a future whereby all the consultation don't have to be done by GPs? Can you foresee a future where nurses could be able to do more of the consultations if they are provided with the, the information that came from the AI at triage point? And then keep the few GPs that are available to be kind of the internal referral points where the condition is too complex for the nurse 
and then the patient could be referred internally to the GP. Uh, this is our approach in Rwanda for now. As we are waiting for the smartphone penetration to be higher so that this AI could be deployed in just any smartphone for patients to um, self-serve, self-triage themselves, because this is the aim. You want to put power back in the hand of the patient so that the patient can deal with a lot of his own condition by way of self-care so that you can relieve the overload that is in health facilities. This is our vision for, for AI, and we are really hoping to be able to actually start using it in quarter two of this year. So we spent a lot of time and resources localizing it, uh, adding the Kinyarwanda language, and actually testing it. And now we think we are ready. We are looking forward to deploying it sometime next month or in two months. Um, that sounds very exciting. And I'm looking forward to following the updates um, of Babel as that moves forward. Could you go a bit into detail on how that self-triage would work over a smartphone? Um, I'm, I'm guessing, and that's why I asked earlier, that would be not over a call, but over text message. Uh, so could you go into just a bit more detail on how that would be integrated? So you have two user cases. You have a um, patient that has access to internet and to a smartphone, but you also have patients that have a feature phone or who don't have a phone at all, which would actually be the third user case. Uh, let's say a patient doesn't have a smartphone, he just has access to a feature phone. You still want to give him uh, access to the capability of the AI. That patient is going to dial in to Bubble uh, Hapline, to Bubble Call Center. Uh, the AI will be put in the hand of the triage nurse. The triage nurse will be reading the chat bot, the, the, the scripts uh, that the AI will be prompting on the screen and translating the questions to the patient. If the AI says, how are you today? The nurse will read it and read it back for the patient. The answers provided by the patient are going to be put back into the chat bot. And the 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 outcome of the conversation might be uh, whether this condition is too severe for Babo, we want to refer you to the health facility, or we think this condition can be dealt with over the phone by our GP, and then the nurse will explain this to the patient and book the appointment. This is for for patient without smartphone, over the phone, and this is a voice conversation. The other user case is going to be a patient that is going to a health facility. And there, if the nurse in the health facility is provided with the AI or any non-clinical staff there who is, will be provided with the AI will be able to triage efficiently and provide him with a quality outcome. The third outcome is about the patient that has a smartphone and access to internet. The patient will be able, hopefully, if he has or she has um, a good level of literacy to read the scripts prompted by the AI, respond to it, be provided with an outcome, 
and hopefully uh, the patient is going to follow that outcome. This is how it's going to work, depending on who the patient is and what the patient has access to. Uh, before you were talking a little bit about testing and being very rigorous in the testing, uh, could you go into a bit more detail on how you test the accuracy of such an AI algorithm um, and also how you test that maybe in different settings, um, as you said before, in the United Kingdom versus um, in Rwanda? Sure. Um, so in Rwanda, the way we tested the AI was, first of all, test it uh, without the patient. Like we take the nurses, they, they, they have role plays. One would play the, the patient and they test the tool in the security of our office without exposing the patient to any kind of risk at all. That would be one phase of it. The second phase of it would be having the nurse testing the AI with our own staff that is not a clinical staff over the phone to kind of see uh, how the so-called patient is responding to the interaction to kind of collect the feedback from the caller and from the nurse in terms of usability and experience. Does the caller feel like the nurse on the other side of the line is disconnected that the nurse is reading a script instead of focusing on the conversation with the patient. So we collected a lot of information from the nurses and from the callers. When we were f we felt that we were safe enough, that we had learned enough, we took this further to test it with uh, real patients. But remember, this was still in the hand of a nurse that uh, was empowered enough to be able to to overrule the decision taken by the AI. So the nurse would report back to management in terms of, I do agree with this outcome provided by the AI. Here I decided not to follow the outcome provided by the AI. In my experience, given my training, I think the outcome should have been this. So we collected all of this information to feedback and to train furthermore our AI. This is how we've been training it. And now we think we, are, we have reached a very good stage in the development of the AI, and now we are looking forward to really deploying it now. But uh, starting with, it will still be used by clinical staff for at least a year before we consider uh, after the learning that will accumulate to scale this further to non-clinical staff. But we still have a long way before we go there. I'm really interested to see how this develops. Um, in general, um, and you alluded a little bit to the future that you foresee uh, earlier when you introduced the topic of AI. So from a clinician's perspective, how do you see the role of doctors changing uh, over the next decade or two, given this new technology? Uh, this is a good question because uh, among the challenges that we faced when we were introducing a telehealth model in Rwanda was we received a lot of pushback from clinicians themselves uh, because the fear factor was kind of huge. Uh, are you coming to replace us? Do you think you can do better than us? And th this has been the case all over the world. Uh, I think the, even the way clinicians were trained all over the world has to evolve. I mean, we were trained 
to sit in an office, wait for the patient, not go to look for him in the community, sit there, wait for him, uh, write the notes on paper, on a paper file, archive them somewhere. If you're lucky when the patient comes back the next day, you're going to find that file. If you're not lucky, you're not going to find it. You just consider the patient as a new patient, uh, whatever the risk. Even if the patient told you last time that he has this severe side effect to this medication, but because you don't have access to that file, you're likely to prescribe that same medication again. This is how we were trained. Uh, the situation has already evolved a lot in the sense that you're now receiving patients that are very educated. Patients come to you when they've already Googled their symptoms. They have some level of understanding already. Uh, we are now pushing our, our, our students not to wait for patients, but to find ways to bridge that gap and go and look for patients. Already things are happening in that sense. And I think this development is going to continue in the sense that uh, now governments are considering uh, introducing AI and digital health and telehealth in the curriculum of our universities. At least it is now the case of Rwanda who is really trying to do so. And yeah, I think we are getting there. I foresee a future whereby not using digital tools or telehealth or some kind of digital platform might be actually considered as a crime in the future because it's, it's just a tool that is there to support. It's not there to replace the clinician, not at all. The clinician will never be replaced. This will just be a tool that is going to augment the clinician's capability. This is at least how I see it. It's not about replacing the clinician. It's about working with the clinician. Yeah, um, thank you for that perspective. I think it's always important to think about that there are two parties to be educated, both the people receiving and using this tool, but also the people who, um, as you said, the doctors, uh, the uh, nurses, uh, and also any kind of other medical staff, even the pharmacist who might have a different interaction now uh, with patients. Um, and it's great to hear that Rwanda is integrating um, these new technologies into their curriculum in the future. Um, I think that's uh, very innovative and very necessary. Um, so aside from AI, what are the next steps for Babel? Um, well, we are ambitious. We still want to grow in here in Rwanda, but also uh, regionally. Here in Rwanda in the sense that uh, the government was cautious to start with. So we... We were not provided with a blank check in terms of our scope of practice. Uh, our scope of practice has been growing steadily over the years. Uh, from back in 2016, when we were just able to, to, to treat a couple of conditions to where we are now, where we can treat more than 70% of the cases, we, we are so lucky that we've managed to sign a contract with the government of Rwanda, a 10-year contract to provide digital health with additions to our scope of practice in the sense that we can now start treating children, at least children that are above 12 years of age, uh, and with the promise to revisit this agreement in one year time to see if we can treat even younger 
children because we have proven in other countries that we can do so and very safely. We are doing it in the United States. We are doing it in Canada. We are doing it in the UK. We think we can do it in Africa. So we want to grow our scope of practice. We want to address even the needs of those people who don't have access to a phone by maybe providing our technology to health facilities so that they can find it there. Maybe putting some sort of platform in public facilities so that even those who don't have a phone can access the platform. So we want to grow our client basis in Rwanda, but we also want to scale all over the region. We have the ambition of becoming the regional headquarter in Rwanda. So we are looking at different countries. We're looking at Kenya. We are looking at South Africa. We're looking at Ethiopia. So many countries we want to scale that we want to scale out to. Uh, and what are some of the challenges that you expect to face as you expand to other countries within Africa? Well, um, challenges will be there because uh, countries are different. And we learned this when we were scaling outside of the UK to Rwanda. We saw the same, even if we, we had already a working model in the UK, one could have assumed that it was just about copying and pasting it to Canada, for instance. We just discovered that even Canada was different, different setting as compared to the UK because you have, uh, you have remote populations, you have actually people who can't use a smartphone, even in countries like Canada, uh, which was astonishing for us in Rwanda because, you know, we have a lot of assumptions. Um, well, when you go to countries like Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Uganda, and, and so, those settings are different. Um, something that has worked in Rwanda might or not work in those countries. As I was saying, Rwanda is a very particular country in the sense that it is very well geographically located. The country is very supportive. The government is very supportive of this kind of initiative. The healthcare system is very structured. We have universal health care coverage. What does that mean in another country? What does that mean in a country where maybe you have uh, more smartphone penetration? Are you considering a hybrid version of our service, providing both digit, um, smartphone apps and telehealth model for feature phones? What does that mean in, in a country where the healthcare system is not as structured as in Rwanda? Uh, what does that mean in a country where most of the patients are paying out of pocket? All, all, all these are parameters that we'll have to really look into. We are not fans of copy and paste. I think we'll have to really study the market and localize. I want to address the current COVID-19 crisis. As of this recording, there have been over 100 confirmed novel coronavirus cases in Rwanda. How can digital health be used during this crisis? And more specifically, how is Babel currently involved? Well, so far, 127 positive cases have been officially reported by the government of Rwanda, at least as of yesterday. Um, we've been so lucky that the government of Rwanda reacted very quickly by uh, putting in place very strict um, barrier um, methods, protection methods, by closing the borders, by restricting uh, the population, the mobility of the population. And by doing so, uh, the country has been able to 
so far control the spread of the disease. Um, now people are in confinement, full confinement. They can only go out for for essential services like pharmacies, healthcare, uh, to resupply in foods. These are challenging times. And the government has provided the population with a helpline, which is MOH114, to help and get some kind of triage for COVID-related symptoms or to get COVID-related information. But because we have COVID in Rwanda, it doesn't mean that all the other diseases, all the other conditions are going to go away. How does a patient that is confined at home get access to healthcare? How do you still treat the simple flu, the malaria, the, 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 the stomach ache that the patient might suffer from, from home, without putting the patient at risk if the patient was to go to a health facility to seek care, because how do you uh, social distance from a, a already bonded, very full of patients health center? It's also putting the patient at risk. So how can you best manage most conditions from the convenience of the patient's home? This is where we come in. This is how we've been able to support the government of Rwanda so far, by providing remote consultation to patients that are in confinement. And we are really looking forward to doing some more of that. We are hoping that um, the country will still be able to control the number of positive cases as it is so far. But um, if the situation was to worsen, at least we'll be ready to support even more the government by doing so. And how do you expect the COVID-19 crisis overall to change the adoption of digital health in healthcare systems in Rwanda, but maybe also across the world? I really think there's going to be a before COVID-19 and an after COVID-19 in terms of how people access healthcare and how digital healthcare is regarded uh, all over the world. We are already seeing a lot of, we are no longer the only one providing remote consultation. Uh, countries that were doubting this model are already putting in place telehealth models. We are seeing that in France, we are seeing that in Italy, we are seeing that in the USA, it has become the new way of providing healthcare. And I do think that countries that are testing this way of providing healthcare are going to end up adopting it in one form or another after the COVID situation is over. So already we are I didn't want a pandemic to put us on the spotlight. Unfortunately, it is the case. But we're already on the spotlight and we, we telehealth is already attracting a lot of interest in terms of uh, patients requesting for the service and governments um, trying things. Even the, the random government has already scaled this 114 line to, to do already COVID-19 triage. Already they've, they have scaled a, a self-triage tool, a USSD self-triage tool by way of SMSs where a patient can self-triage instead of um, flooding the 114 line, which is also limited in, num in terms of number of calls that they can accept. So I think telehealth and digital health are going to be more accepted going forward. And this is where I was saying there'll be 
before and, and after COVID-19. Thank you, Patrick, for sharing your perspective on digital health with us today. Uh, I'm really excited to see the further integration of AI into digital health platforms and the expansion of Babel into other countries in Africa. Uh, it's been really fascinating to hear your perspectives of the future and the roles that both patients as well as clinicians will play. Um, before we end today's episode, could you please share with our audience how they can find out more about Babel uh, or maybe reach out to you? Sure. Um, anyone of your listener who needs more information about Babel or Babylon at large can go on our website, uh, www.babylonhealth.com or the Babel website, which is www.babel.com. RW. And from there, they can get all the information that they need. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast online, and make sure to share it with your friends. Download the full show notes of this episode on our website, pmedcast.com. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for the show, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com or reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a nice day and until next time.